Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about how to market yourself without feeling like a sleaze. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> I should have said it in a sleazier voice. <laughs> you could try. Want to buy a watch? So we mentioned in the last episode, the idea of marketing yourself, marketing in general. And it's been my experience that lots of people who I work with who are from the software development community are allergic to the idea of marketing and sales. And I'm saying that with air quotes because I don't think they really know what marketing and sales I shouldn't say they don't know what it is. They have an, an impression of marketing and sales that is not 100% correct. And they don't want to be like the people they see doing marketing and sales. Mm -hmm. For anybody who, first of all, has that sort of allergic reaction to the idea of marketing themselves or, or doing sales, I just want to open your mind at the beginning of this episode to just keep an open mind and think like, okay, maybe, maybe I, I have an incomplete picture of what marketing and sales is. Maybe it's not gross. and Maybe it's not something that I would rather go have a root canal than participate in. Yeah. In fact, it can actually be fun if you do it in your own style in your own way. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, it's Seth Godin, who I'm a huge fan of. I think we're both big fans of. He's, he says that marketing is a noble profession. And, and I believe that's true if you do it the way he does it. Yes. You know, yes. He sees yes. marketing as a, you know, marketers are people who make change happen, in particular changes in the culture, which are very hard to make. So assuming that you're trying to make an improvement in the culture, then that, that is a noble pursuit. But I imagine that a lot of people don't think of marketing as an attempt to change the culture. So maybe we could start off with our personal definitions of marketing, what it looks like, you know, not like Merriam-Webster, but just off the top of your head, like, what do you see as marketing as distinct from sales? Because we can talk about that too. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I grew up in a big consulting firm and, and back in the day, we called sales marketing. The reason we did it was because everybody thought sales was sleazy. And I worked with a lot of actuaries and they're like, no, 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 no. I don't sell, I market. So there's a lot of people that use those terms interchangeably. In my mind, marketing is, is everything from how you position yourself in the market to your overall messages, to how you reach out to a swath of your public. It's, very, it's not necessarily one-to-one, -one, it's kind of one-to-many. And then sales is the actual one-to-one -one or one-to-a-small-group process, typically, unless you've got a lot of products in a big audience. And sales is that direct relationship where you go from the first point of contact to the purchase, and then, of course, beyond. One thing I want to say about marketing that I think it includes even a, a couple more things uh, than you mentioned. So in addition to some of those things, I think marketing can also include product development, product design, pricing. Pricing, actually, your prices are probably the strongest signal that you can send to the marketplace because pretty much everybody understands a dollar amount or you know whatever your local currency is. But it's a very strong marketing signal. And I think if you approach marketing from an empathetic standpoint, where you're not trying to persuade people or or browbeat or trick people into buying something that they don't need. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is finding the people for whom you are a good fit and making them aware that there's potentially a mutually beneficial relationship. So your products aren't for everyone. So if you're not selling to everyone, you're just selling to particular people who are your ideal buyers, 
we've talked about this a million times in the past, you know, the people who, when you work with them, the clients that allow you to operate in your genius zone, do your best work, they don't micromanage you. Like they're awesome clients and they get a lot out of the relationship and you get a lot out of the relationship. That's mutually beneficial. I think anybody who's been doing client work has that experience, has the experience of having an awesome client. Hopefully you've got the experience of having had at least one awesome client. And I see marketing as, as the sort of onboarding to that relationship. So how do I present myself to the world in a way that I'm going to attract people who are probably going to be awesome clients? So really what, what you want to do is you want to focus on how you're serving your audience. You know, what do you do that transforms them? How are they different after you've worked with them than they were before you met? Yeah. How do you improve their condition? Right. You can look at marketing as the process of looking for people whose condition you can probably improve. And to bring a little bit of a pricing thing into it and price it in a way that's profitable to you and to them. So it's not about tricking people into something they don't need. And that doesn't work anyway, because you end up with buyer's remorse. That's a short game. That's for somebody who's coming through town like a carnival barker. That doesn't work anymore. That environment doesn't exist because everybody's everywhere always. So it's not like some carny passing through town. Right. And authorities don't do that. Our listeners do not do that. Right. But so here's what happens is they get the impression of the carny or the barker or the used car salesman or the people who are doing a really awful style of marketing and sales. And that's the easy kind to notice. And so they sort of conflate all marketing and sales with the really bad kind because the really bad kind is the kind you see. The really good kind is invisible. So if you imagine your favorite brands, maybe it's, I don't know, Starbucks, Target, uh, Subaru, uh, Nike, whatever it is, imagine your favorite brands, like a big, big company. And if you looked at their org chart, they've got a CMO. They probably have a North American director of sales. They probably have an entire marketing organization. They're probably spending millions or, I don't know, hundreds of millions, billions, probably not billions, but they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year in some cases on marketing and sales. But they're still your favorite brands. You don't feel like they're interrupting you or annoying you when you you get an email that you've opted in for. You're excited to see it. Oh, look, new sneakers. These are, this is great. Whatever it is, like even small brands, even if it's a mom and pop coffee shop near your house, they're all marketing. They're putting themselves into the world in a way that you, in this case, happen to enjoy, happen to not feel interrupted by or accosted or persuaded or tricked. Because when you engage with their products and services, you feel better afterwards. You like the result better than the money that you spent on purchasing it. So since that kind of marketing and sales is basically invisible because it doesn't feel like what you think marketing and sales is, people have a tendency to not notice it and they just notice the really horrible you know, bad used car salesman model. And they don't want to be like that person. It's about being who you are. It's about being authentic and serving that audience in, in interesting ways, ways that you enjoy, ways that your audience enjoys, ways that are sustainable for you. Absolutely. My approach to it, to marketing is to help people as much as possible for free. So I have a daily list where I try to help people as much as possible for free. I have podcasts where I try to help people as much as possible for free. I don't try to hold stuff back. None of that. I'm just trying to be helpful. And then the side effect, and this is where I leave myself vulnerable, my leap of faith is that I trust that enough people 
are going to be so helped by the free stuff that they're like, whoa, 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 I need more of this faster. So I'm going to write a check to Stark to get individualized attention or, or some other thing. I just trust that that's a side effect. It's not the goal. My goal is to help as many people as possible. And I just trust that, that I'll get enough money from that down the road to fund my mission. So, I mean, that might sound like BS, but it's true. So if you, if you approach your audience with empathy and you put yourself in their shoes, you understand the, their pains, dreams, worries, nightmares, you just help them as much as you can for free. So, you know, for me, it's usually in a broadcast method, a daily email or podcast like this or video. Now I'm doing videos on YouTube. It's going to attract people. That's marketing. Like, is that sleazy? I mean, you listen, dear listener, you're listening to this podcast. Do you feel like I'm selling to you? I'm not. I'm trying to help you. <laughs> and if you want to do it for free and you want to do it on your own, great, great. That's great. Well, that's the generosity principle. And, you know, I would argue that that's a way to live our lives, period. I certainly started doing that when I was in a big firm growing up there because it's it just seemed like the right thing to do. And you can argue, oh, well, it's easier when you're on salary somewhere, but it's exactly the same thing. If you help enough people for free, there will be people who want to hire you to do that. Yeah, right. And they'll sort of come out of the woodwork, like they just appear, you know, it's like magic. It's not magic. I know exactly how, I know the mechanics work. So I know it's not magic. It's like magic because you're not like stopping people on the street and jamming a flyer in their hand. Yeah, exactly. Or, or wearing a cow suit and trying to, you know, sell tax <laughs> services, right? That'd be good episode artwork. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, you reminded me when you mentioned the consulting, you know, even inside, inside consulting, there's a great quote from Peter Drucker. I don't think I mentioned it last week. If I did, it's worth saying again. Um, he says, the question isn't, how can I succeed? The question is, what can I contribute? To me, that's marketing right there. What can I contribute? How can I help? Right. How can I help you succeed? Absolutely. And, and if you, you know, jump on the phone with someone, they, they raise their hand, they say, hey, we'd love to talk about maybe you know, having a formal arrangement. And you talk to them and it's not a good fit, then you don't do it. Because short term, yeah, you'd get a check or whatever, but long term, that would be probably end up going poorly. Someone who's not a good fit or you're seeing red flags or you don't communicate well or whatever it is, it's like, no, you just walk away and or, or, you know, point them and say, oh, I don't think I'm going to be a good fit, but I know someone who might work for you or here's, some, here's a book you should probably read instead of spending $1,000 with me. Go do that instead. And Oh, I do that all the time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because the goal isn't to close every deal to speak in salesperson speak. The goal is to help that person get to where they want to be. And if you are the right resource for them, absolutely, you're going to show them how you can help them and then let them decide without any hard pressure tactics. But if you're not the right one for them, it's I think it's your duty really is to help them be at least as good as they were when they came to you and hopefully better. And you can do that with books, sending them to a website, referring them to someone else who does this, or telling them about a program that you, you're aware of. It, I mean, that's what we do as, as experts and as consultants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the difference between long game and short game, like making your quarterly sales numbers. The um, sort of sales phrase, always be closing, that drives me crazy. That's like, that's to me, that's bad sales. That's pushy, using techniques and memorizing all these phrases and the hard sell. Right. So right. I have a friend who just uh, was considering getting like solar on his roof and the salesperson just talked himself into the house. 
was there for two hours. They had decided in the first five minutes that there was no way on God's green earth they were going to give this guy a dime. And he still managed to stay there for two hours the whole time them, them trying to get him out. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> that is not. Please, no. <laughs> right. That's the short game. That's That reeks of desperation. That is going to lead to buyer's remorse. That is not going to build your reputation. That's going to, even if people at the end of the engagement don't blame you for how it went, they're still not going to be raving about you. If, if they're embarrassed of the outcome, they're just not going to want to talk about it. So if you think long game, it's still marketing. It's still sales. I know in my audience, a lot of people don't get a lot of leads. They can't imagine doing anything besides always be closing. It's kind of like every, every client that comes over the transom, they're like, I need this client. I'll do anything to get it. I'll do anything for them. I'm like, you know, like you said, it's not really your, well, they're desperate, you know? So it's like, so you can see it and then it doesn't go that well. Like you said, it's kind of your duty to walk away from engagements that you don't believe are going to be successful. In fact, I can even turn it around to the other side of that coin and say, if what you do, if you believe that what you do is valuable to particular people, you have a duty to let them know. Like if you had the cure for cancer and were just like, well, I don't want to interrupt people and let them know. <laughs> no, yes, you, you should interrupt them. The example I usually say is like, you imagine a doctor in a restaurant having dinner and some guy at the next table is choking. And he's like, well, I don't want to interrupt the guy. I don't want to interrupt his meal. I mean, I could save his life, but that would be rude. I don't want to, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so if he waves me over, you know, if he calls me over, then he doesn't know you're a doctor. I mean, the whole thing, of course, is I'm trying to push it to the logical extreme to make a point. But when people tell me that they are uncomfortable, outreach is probably the pushiest thing that the people in my audience would think of doing, perhaps cold calls being the most obvious example. But if we back away from that and say something like, I have people who wouldn't send out a tweet to a webinar because they're like, oh, that feels so slimy. Like, why? Uh. Here's what I say to them when they say that. I'm like, well, do you believe that the information you're going to deliver in the webinar is valuable to them? Oh, yeah, definitely. This will be great for them. So you're, you're keeping it from them. Well, no. Well, why don't, you, why don't you promote it? Like, why don't you let people know about it? If, you know, not the whole wide world, but the people who would most likely stand to benefit from it. Well, I don't want to be pushy. It's like, all right, so basically you're stealing from them. You know, if I, the value that they would get out of that webinar, you are keeping it for yourself. So maybe it's not stealing, you're hoarding it. You're hoarding the value. These people, you, you just told me that you believe that they would benefit from it. They need it. They know they need it. They have this pain, you have the cure, but you're, you're too shy to let them know about it. The more arrogant thing is thinking that people are just going to magically find you because you're so great that they're just going to magically know that you have this pill that is going to solve their problem. That's not going to happen. No, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I think it's worse now because there's so many people, um, soloists, that are doing similar kinds of work. And if you're not differentiating yourself from everybody else, the marketplace doesn't see you. I don't know if this is the best example, but I, I was just looking at something in a Bed Bath & Beyond catalog and there was a piece of furniture in it. I went, really? They have furniture? And then it said, go to bedbathandbeyond.com and we have all of these things. And I thought, isn't that interesting? How would, how would anybody ever know? Because you don't think, at least I don't think of, of them as having furniture. I wouldn't go to the website to look at it. I probably wouldn't buy it. But if I saw it in a different context, 
if it was marketed to me in a different way, I might go, oh, well, isn't that interesting? Let me click on this and take a look. And it's it's the same thing for us because our clients have a lot of choices and it can be hard to find you amongst everybody else that's in your niche. So you've got to, you got to work at it. You got to put yourself out there. And again, not in a boastful, I'm fabulous kind of way, but this is what we're going to do together kind of way. And this is, this is why you need X, X being, you know, your special sauce. Mm -hmm. So everyone's convinced now. (laughs) So, so, okay, dear listener, you're convinced. Okay. Maybe marketing's not evil. The next sort of tricky step is like, well, what do I do though? Because because all of the, there's techniques out the wazoo. Like you can't open up a web browser without somebody telling you like, oh, here's some marketing and sales techniques. I mean, if there's a style of business book has, that has been most published, it's gotta be sales. So it's like, what do you do? And the more empathy you have for your audience, the more natural you're gonna be at this. You won't even have to think about it. You just have to make sure you do it. To, you, know, you need to say to yourself, okay, every day I need to do a little bit of marketing. But that might look like you going on Quora and answering five questions once a week, you know, or one, one question per day, or it might be going on Twitter, doing the same thing, or writing an email or blogging, but connecting with people and putting yourself out there, taking the first step is another way to look at it, taking the first step and saying, hey, here's, here's this thing I made. I think it might help. Or as Seth says all the time, you know, it's not for everyone, but it might be for you. And let them have it. Every interaction is a value exchange. So if somebody, even when I'm giving stuff away for free, which is the vast majority of the things I create, when I'm giving stuff away for free, I still want the receiver to have a positive ROI. So in your marketing, and here I'm trying to give you a general rule for your marketing. So like go out into the world and help people who you believe you can help. Okay. That doesn't sound bad, does it? And then whenever you're helping them, whether it's one-to-one or in a group or whatever, try to make the interaction valuable to them. In other words, the amount of time it takes them to, let's say, read your blog post needs to be rewarded in a positive way. So don't put out garbage listicles. Don't put out this clickbait, one quick trick to lose belly fat or doctors were shocked. You know, (laughs) Yeah, that's crap. That is crap. So don't do that. Don't do anything you'd be ashamed of. No one's suggesting that you do that. First of all, know who your audience is. Have Build some empathy with them. Go out into the world and connect with them. Help them where you can. And when you're engaging with them in that, in that any contact you have, do everything you can to give them positive ROI. I don't know how to better say it, but like if it takes them five minutes to read the, your blog post or to interact with you on Twitter, make them glad that they did it. So at the end of it, they're like, that was amazing. That was totally worth my time. That was worth my attention. And if you do that all the time, that's marketing. After that, the tactics are like, just go where you already go, probably in some Slack room or Twitter or IRC or Quora or LinkedIn, and just help people type up an answer to a question that's longer than anyone would have reasonably expected. Type a 500 word answer to a question on LinkedIn. And just be like, blow somebody's mind and do it again and do it again and do it again. And as you do that, you're going to be building more people into your audience. You're going to be delivering value. People are going to be attracted to you. They're going to share it. You can just trust that that's going to happen as a side effect. If you successfully deliver value in each interaction, you're going to build your audience. There's no way. I I can't imagine why that wouldn't happen. 
Well, you know, what this makes me think of is James Clare, who's been a guest on the show. And uh, it just so happens today is the day that his book dropped. So he sent out his group email and I just had to make note given what the topic was today. And he basically said, if you've gained any value from my six years of articles and you want to support my work, please buy the book today. And I thought, what a great example, because he does these really rich well-thought-out, well-researched articles. They're hugely valuable to his audience, certainly to me, and I I know you as well. I had to chuckle. That was like the perfect low-key ask. If I've given you value and and you want to support my work, please buy the book today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's selling. That's not marketing. That's selling. And it was very well done. I agree. I mean, if that is too much of a hard sell for you, dear listener, then I don't know. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty light touch. (laughs) Yeah. It was light touch, but from, it felt from the heart, if you know what I mean. It felt personal. It's genuine. And it's, and it's not like out of the blue, you're not like cruising around Instagram and seeing like this ad on Instagram. I guess they do. So it's like, this is the tail end of probably being on the guy's list for a year, a year, two years. I mean, he's got a half a million people on his mailing list and he barely sells anything. Like, like he barely has any products to sell. I mean, these emails take him like 20 hours to write an email and he does it twice a week and he's been doing it for years. And so, you know, he works on this book for five years and it's like, it's a great way to put it. So it's, my point is it's not just dropping out of the sky, like some random email just showed up in your inbox. He's sending this out to people, a community that he's had connection with, some of whom for many years. I'm just trying to like put context around how soft an ask that is. Yeah. But he's not going to beat us over the head with it. I can pretty much guarantee. Exactly. Right. Yeah. There's a story. I I just think it'd be interesting that it's a Napoleon Hill story. And this is back in in the early 20th century. But he wanted to get the equivalent at the time to say a Warren Buffett to write an intro for his book. And Napoleon Hill didn't know him, but he wrote him a letter when we used to write letters, saying that he expected to sell about 20,000 copies of his book. And he knew that those 20,000 people would benefit from, you know, this great man's experience. I mean, he basically said, you know, I I asked not for myself, but for the 20,000 people who need your wisdom. And the mogul said, yes. And Napoleon Hill's career was off and running. Because Yeah. Yeah. Don't you love that story? Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And he, he found a way to deliver value to the guy, the mogul. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, if he's like, oh, I, th- I think you're great. Sort of fanboyed it out. And was like, oh, I, I love your work. Hey, could you please write? It? No, that's not because that's not what the mogul is looking for. I, you know, guessing. Obviously, it worked. And I'm guessing. But saying like, look, these people, I know your message. And I know these people need your message. So this is a way for you to get your message to 20,000 people who probably haven't heard it yet. Woof. And, and who you can help. Right. I mean, these are people who want to change their lives and they can learn from your wisdom. Right, right. That's huge. Right. Yeah, it happens. It happens. You know, I'm not comparing myself to a mogul like Warren Buffett, but no, I probably shouldn't say this. I'll get swarmed with. Actually, it's, I take that back. It's fine. If you want to have me on your show to talk about something, I almost never say no. And if I do say no, it's just calendar issue. If somebody asks me to come on a show, I don't even ask how many listeners they have. I don't care because I consider myself to be on a mission. And if somebody wants to give me time in the, on their platform to talk about it to anybody, I'm going to, why wouldn't I do it? It's not like I have to fly somewhere. I'm just going to like jump on a Skype call. I'm going to do it. If I can fit it in my calendar, 
So, so if you have a podcast, let me know. I'll come on. (laughs) But it's the same thing though. It's not, I I don't feel like I'm, I'm not doing it for the host. I'm doing it for their audience. Right. You know what I mean? It's right. That's, I love that story. That's really good. Yeah. But it goes back to the core of, of what we all do, which is, you know, I feel like I keep beating this drum, but it's important. It's we serve, we transform. That's what we do. And we love doing it. It's the part that we all have in common. When you give somebody else the opportunity to give their gifts to the world, they will take it nine times out of 10, 9.9 times out of 10. Yep. Do you think it's because we're like not spring chickens? Like, is that why? <laughs> is that why this, it seems I'm, I'm going to be 50 like in a month or two. I know I didn't think about the word like this in my 20s. Do you think that's part of it? Well, I, I think it's a mix of things. I mean, I, I think about... I made partner in in a big firm at 31. So I was doing this stuff in my 20s. And I just, nobody really taught me that. It was just, I watched what was going on around me. I did have some really good mentors, but I watched what was going on around me. And I just felt like I had a responsibility to the people I was serving. And so I can still remember the year I said no to a very big company and the firm wanted the logo, but it was the wrong project. And I took a lot of flack for it. I suffered in my bonus for it. But a year and a half later, and, and it took the third time, the third project they approached me with was the right one. And we did the work and it built a multi-million dollar relationship that lasted, for all I know, it probably is still there. But it was that looking out for them. I mean, I wasn't a Pollyanna, don't get me wrong. It was just, it just seemed to me like that's how I would make a career and how I would build a group of clients. And when I spent 80 hours a week, so these were people I spent a lot of time with. I wanted them to be people I liked and that I wanted to help. I do think some of this comes as we get knocked around a little bit in, in life, in our, in our jobs, in our work. I can almost hear the listener saying, well, gee, it's easy for you. You have a business already. I'm just getting started. But I think if you take the long view and and have enough money in your bank account when you start so you're you don't have to take the things that don't make sense. I think the long view happens pretty quickly. You know, after a year or two of that, you're you're going to be pulling in your tribe, the people who really value what you can do for them. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, timeline, everything you just said, I totally agree. And it's funny because I was as you were talking, I was thinking when did it switch for me? And it, it switched for me when I was doing client work and I was in my thirties, you know, we were billing by the hour and, and lots of projects blow up in your face when you're billing by the hour because it's a bad approach. And that experience of disappointing, at least going over budget on like 90%. <laughs> of, I, I mean, if I don't believe we ever came in under budget ever, but let's just say 90% going over budget 90% of the time to a greater or lesser degree. That is a horrible feeling. And we still got paid. We still got all the money. You know, we got paid for our time. And I know we had plenty of hours here and there, but, but it's just a gross feeling. And after a while, I got sick of it. I mean, I didn't like it at first, but after a while, it was like, this is an epidemic. It doesn't matter how much before the job, it just doesn't matter how much I I, I think the scope's X, so I'll 2X it and give that estimate, still goes over. Oh, oh 4X, <laughs> still goes over. The Software. F- yeah, the fish grows the size of the bull, and then it's not done. So I was like, I don't, I'm going to go be a garbage man. I can't do this. I can't have these relationships. And, you know, 
probably 95 times out of 100, the client didn't blame us. They were like, like, oh yeah, you know, we changed the goalposts and, you know, moved the goalposts and changed the scope. And yeah, it's like, but still it feels horrible. I just couldn't take that anymore. So I was like, that was my whole, that was where the whole value pricing came in is like giving people fixed prices. So they never, I was like, I'm never going over budget again. And I never have. When developers who do currently bill by the hour hear that, they're like, but you know, oh, but you must lose money all the time. And it's like, actually, no. Once I did, air quotes, once I had a, a lower than average effective hourly rate from a project, but the, the rest of the 12 years or however many years I did it, when I was consulting, it was like, no, actually it didn't because I would walk away from bad clients. That's the thing. Like that's the discipline is be like, recognize a client that's going to be a bad fit. I'm not even saying a bad client. It's just bad fit for me and point them to someone else who I think they'll be a good fit for. And if you navigate to the ideal clients, then you're, it's not automatic, but it definitely increases the likelihood that you're going to have a mutually beneficial relationship and everybody's going to be happy. And, and you know, not just you, but the, the listener, you know, when somebody's a bad fit, you can feel it. You get off the, the phone or the Skype and you go, oh, I really don't want to do that project or I'm not feeling it with the client. And again, not that they're a bad person, but it's just they're not your ideal client. And you're like, eh. so you, you want to be in that position where you can say no, because you must. Yeah. Yep. Toward the tail end of my client work consulting career, I could tell, I like I spot red flags a mile away. At the beginning, I couldn't spot red flags as easily. It wasn't as obvious, but I always knew looking back on it, I would procrastinate on the proposals for the clients. I really didn't want to. Yeah. It was like a subconscious thing. Like if I was excited about a project, I couldn't wait to write the proposal. I was all like energized. And when I wasn't energized, it was because it was actually going to be a really bad client, like a bad fit. Cause I was like, ugh. The whole definition of it was hazy. I didn't understand where they were coming from. The communication was not good. I didn't know where to start. I'll just put it off, put it off, put it off. Looking back on it, that was a sign in the early years when it wasn't going to be great. Well, that's the beauty of having a solo consulting practice. You know, if you have a group of people and they're on salary and you have to keep them busy, all of a sudden you feel like you have to take those assignments, even when they don't fit because you have mouths to feed. And it, it, and it isn't sometimes even just about the money. You want to keep your people busy because busy people are usually happy people unless it's, you know, 80 hours a week busy. It's finding that balance. Yes. It complicates matters at first when you've got payroll every month because that's, I mean, payroll is the scariest thing that's ever happened to me in my life and I've been divorced. So... <laughs> 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 there are very few things I've literally lost sleep over in my life and payroll is one of them. Yes. Yes. Payroll's big. It's like a weight on your shoulders that just never leaves. Yeah. Yeah. It's like worrying about 10 people's mortgages instead of just yours. Mm -hmm. And their mortgages and their kids. And yeah, it's, yeah, I hear you. Been there. Yes. So <laughs> let's bring it back to the topic though. So <laughs> yeah, really <laughs> a nice walk down we're memory done, lane. Done with our, we're done with our therapy now. Yes. To summarize, I feel like I want people to know that there's a kind of marketing that they would be cool with. So you, dear listener, I promise you there's a kind of marketing that you would be comfortable with because you currently probably help people. If you're in a service business, which is pretty much, I think pretty much everybody is listening is probably in some kind of a service business. You already help people. You are that type. Just do it in your marketing, which basically means help people for free to the extent that you can, you know, you probably have to do it in some sort of a broadcast fashion, not a one-to-one, -one, but depends on your 
resources, your available resources, but just help people. And then when it comes down to the sales process, the, the piece where, you know, they need to make a go or no go decision, do I write this check or not? You help them with that decision too. If you're getting the signs, if you're feeling like this isn't going to be a good fit, say no, point them somewhere else. Say maybe, you know, I like you, but I don't know if this is the right project for us right now, whatever it is, whatever the concern is, because it's not going to go away. If you take the project on anyway, the concerns, you're probably right. You know, I'd say better than 50% chance that you're onto something and gut instinct that something might not be a good fit. And then having it blow up in your face six months later is, uh, it's very draining. The whole thing is draining. It's emotionally draining. It's stressful. It can be financially draining. It's this huge opportunity cost where you could be working with, you know, maybe the next day or two days later, you were going to meet a client for whom you were a great fit. And you missed out on that because you took on this project that you knew in your bones was not going to be a great fit. You say no to get to yes. Yeah. I feel a little bit like we're seeing trust the universe. <laughs> Kumbaya, you know, yes. Something set it free, right? But <laughs> but the marketing piece for me now that we're talking through it is kind of like the delivery piece in a way. It's like in the delivery piece, I'm trying to help the client. I'm just getting paid to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's you're giving people the experience of working with you in your marketing. That's the best marketing. You give them that experience. So they, they feel you, they, they know how you speak, how you offer advice, your point of view, all of that. I mean, if you market yourself that way, you cannot feel like a sleaze. And if you market yourself that way and you feel like a sleaze, you'll never be successful because you're not believing what you're selling. Right. Yeah, it goes back to that. If you believe in the value of what you're selling, you have an obligation to let people know about it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's your duty. Yeah. Or like Alan White says, first sales to yourself. If you don't believe that what you're selling is valuable, then of course it's not going to sell. And of course you're not, you're going to be sort of bashful or whatever about putting it in the world or helping people, you know, sharing your expertise with people because you have imposter syndrome or you don't believe all the reasons. That's probably a little too much to tackle over. (laughs) But if you really believe in the value of what you do, why wouldn't you share it? Yeah, we want to hear about it. We do. And I say we, the world, your world, your slice of the world wants to hear about it. And yes, there's a lot of noise. And the way that you cut through the noise is you focus on your ideal client. You use consistent messaging that's authentic with who you are. You use the platforms to distribute your content that are consistent with who you are, whether that's email, social media, regular media, articles, all of the above. You you just keep doing that. That's the job of being an expert that wants to become an authority. Perfect. All right. There we go. There we go. An episode. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. I'm sorry, before we wrap, I just want to, I want to make one book recommendation. I meant to say it, I forgot earlier, but there's a book called The Secret to Selling Anything by Harry Brown. It was written in the 60s. And the book, if you're still, eh, you listen to this and we haven't completely convinced you, haven't completely changed your mind, that is the book to read. So of all the books, Seth Gunn's got a million, Permission Marketing, all that stuff's good. The best one I've ever read was The Secret to Selling Anything by Harry Brown. It is the most delightful sales book you can possibly imagine. I can't imagine a more perfect sales book for this kind of an audience or someone who's in this sort of feeling of like, oh, yuck, marketing. <laughs> well, let's put a link at the, in the show notes. Yes, yes. Okay, and with that, I will shut up about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good info. Cool. Um, all right, well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.